This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. And joining me today is Oz Davis. Oz is the host of Truly the Goats, a podcast that redefines the term greatest of all time. And in a former life, he was a film critic. And we welcome him on today's show to discuss our triple feature of Super Bowl disaster thrillers. The films include Two Minute Warning from 1976, Black Sunday from 1977, and Superdome from 1978. I think we got a good show and a good conversation for you guys. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy the show. Before we go deeper into the movies, just to ask a question about your podcast, Julie the Goats. Do you want to give the audience a little bit of a background about how you started that and kind of what your what your moves are now with it, what you are working towards? Sure. Truly the Goats is in a lot of ways, it's kind of the culmination of my work and my interests uh, in my professional career. You know, in my career, I've done a lot of sports writing, a lot of sports podcasting. Uh, did I was a movie reviewer pretty much full time for four years, and then uh, specialized in sports movie reviews on a podcast I did in the teens. So way back, actually, very, very early podcast on the landscape. Uh, but Truth of the Goats is basically about this. I find it really annoying, fascinating, uh, distracting, many adjectives. This sort of tendency that we have both in broadcasting, online, and just in everyday life. Where when something happens in sports, uh, we immediately have to refer to it as the greatest of all time. You know, um, I swear to God, within the space of about 12 months, uh, the narrative in football in particular switched from Peyton Manning is the GOAT to Tom Brady is the GOAT to Drew Brees is the GOAT. And basically, truly, the GOATs is about folks. Let's have some perspective. I mean, all time. I mean, we realize now that the NFL itself is 100 years old, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as though you can, by definition, you can't have a goat every Sunday. (laughs) You know, it's just let's have some perspective. Let's stand back and look through history at some of this stuff. The other thing is this, too. And, and this was really the thing that that triggered all this sort of thinking about 10 or 11 years ago um, is that, OK, I was watching this this ball game with the Yankees and they're referring to this left handed relief pitcher as the greatest left handed reliever of all time. Right. And I was just like, wow. I mean, how long have closers existed? <laughs> you know, and, and I would always make the joke. Oh, yeah. No, I heard in the Roman Empire, there was some great relief pitchers. <laughs> you know, it's like, let's have some perspective. Humans have been playing organized, complex ball sports now for 5,000, 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's not tee off and, and navel gaze. 
which is really what I think this is. It's really navel gazing and it's about clickbaiting. You know, it's about, it's about give me your attention because I'm making this outrageous statement and everybody get on board. You know, so, so that's what the podcast is about. Now, it's also about it's about athletes, great athletes. I try and do crossover sports, crossover athletes when possible. So guys like Jim Thorpe, Babe Didrikson, or just guys who totally dominate their sport, uh, such as ride in the sumo wrestler or, mm-hmm. you know, Angelo Mosca for the CFL. Um, just totally dominant forces. And I also like to explore the sport itself and the culture that that player uh, lived in and played in. Once it's good that you want to give that perspective too, because even if we're just talking about like football, right? I mean, a tailback's responsibility in the 1930s and 40s was completely different than what it was in the 60s and 70s, and it's completely different than what it is today. So it's sure. like, how can you how can you really define what the greatest of all time is when you have such a different skill set required to thrive in the game of your era? Right, right, right. Especially with games like football and to a large extent, not nearly as much, uh, basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, the rules change year to year, you know, and and so you can't really compare. Um, another another one is just track and field events. You know, people are just getting faster. You know, mm-hmm. the training is better. Um, they scope these guys out at younger ages and these women at younger ages. You know, same goes with gymnastics and stuff like that. They're just better athletes. But something like baseball, something like cricket, I believe is infinitely comparable through the eras. I mean, probably because somebody else on another podcast pointed this out to me, probably because there's so many stats. Right. Where you can really break it down and really just, you know, uh, level the playing field, sort of, if you want to, you know, do the the goat comparisons or whatnot. But yeah, there is that element to it as well. But again, I always try and look at the dominance factor. You know, it doesn't matter if Jim Thorpe uh, ran the mile in, you know, five minutes or, you know, whatever silly number it was. It doesn't matter. The truth is he won the decathlon and pentathlon at the same Olympics. Right. That's domination. Mm-hmm. You know? it, it doesn't matter. Like, like if he would finish last today, it doesn't matter if he would get beaten by that dog that ran onto the track last <laughs> week at some, at some race. It doesn't matter if that dog is faster than him. He crushed everybody in this time period. So that's what it's is really about. Well, and plus, too, you know, if a lot of those people were today, they would have the same access to the training and right. the full time luxury, too. So I, I would have no reason to believe that they couldn't keep up with the trends that athletics right. goes towards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine Babe Ruth with training and steroids? Jesus. I mean, <laughs> what, 75 home runs? I yeah. mean, you know, right handed? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just I especially in a sport like baseball or cricket, where so many of the skills are these abstract reflex kind of things. Right. You know, how how like in baseball, well, not so much these days, but back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s or whatever, and before that, you could have any body type and play baseball. You know, you could be a big fat guy like John Cruck or Louis Tiant and play baseball, you know, because it depends on these weird abstract skills and these reflexes and and and, and brain stuff, you know, that. Something like weightlifting. <laughs> does yeah. not just doesn't require that so 
And now what about your transition as a film critic? When and how did that come about? Wow. Okay. Well, I got into newspapers in the early 90s. And, uh, but soon thereafter, I graduated university and went to Europe, went to go live in Europe and got with a paper there called Budapest Week. And the short of it was, is that, you know, I was the arts guy. I was the arts editor fairly from the go. As soon as I arrived in Hungary, in Budapest, um, this kind of the old regime at the paper was moving out. And so, you know, we were bringing in whole new team and whatnot. So I was pretty much the art editor from the go and my bread and butter was movie reviews because wow, it was, it was a really interesting time at that time uh, for, you know, expatriates and for, you know, the people themselves, you know, this is post Berlin wall. We're sort of adapting. We're bringing in like all this cultural stuff, all this capitalistic stuff. And uh, the movie scene was pretty hot. I mean, as far as bringing in European films, American films, British films, not so much the Hungarian film industry itself, because they were still having to rebuild, you know, from having total government support to figuring out the channels to get money. Um, so but for other countries, movies, it was great. Now, the crazy thing is it wasn't like nowadays where a film would get released all over the world on the same day. You know, these blockbuster films or whatever. The way they had to do it in those days is they had to pick their movies pretty much at the beginning of every like half year. They okay. had to pick what they could afford. So when Titanic hit Hungary, for example, or when they knew it was coming, you got like what's eating Gilbert Grape <laughs> for the first time. And you got like Man in the Iron Mask, you know, mm -hmm. because they were prepping you for Titanic. They're bringing on all the DiCaprio films. Right. So later on, you can catch them in. So you got this weird mix of 90s films from America and contemporary stuff from Europe. And I, I got quite a knack for being controversial because, you know, David's first law of uh, aesthetics is that, you know, 90 percent of everything is crap. And, and it is really. I mean, a lot of Hollywood movies are bad. A lot of. British movies are bad. A lot of European movies are bad. And it's just people have a hard time kind of admitting that, you know, because they spent money on it and they're like, it's good for what it was, you know, to which my answer is it's a movie. That's what it was. Now, was it a good movie? <laughs> you know, um, and so I got kind of a knack for being controversial uh, on doing that. Now, when I came back to the States with another newspaper gig, I kind of shifted over to news. I was doing a lot of politics stuff in those days. Uh, Albuquerque is not a great sports town outside of the university. So, you know, I wasn't doing much sports writing in those days. And uh, but later on, I returned to to uh, Hungary, started a podcast with a friend of mine working in Germany. Uh, on, uh, on international basketball. But at the end of every show, we did a sports film review. So that was another way for me to get back into film reviews. Um, still to this day, every once in a while, I'll go to a movie and go, damn, I wish I were a film critic. <laughs> you know, because I want to write something about it or, or even, even podcast something about it uh, for a little while. I should also mention for a little while uh, in 2018, 2019, and into 2020, um, I was doing a podcast called The MacGuffin Report, uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, with a couple of a couple of other folks. And uh, during the pandemic, we I, I arranged a special mini series. We did a half dozen episodes on uh, binge binge watching movies during the pandemic. So you know we have the Bill Murray episode, we have the Tom Hanks episode. Uh, Should have had a Scarlett Johansson episode because she pops up a lot. <laughs> she pops up a lot in 21st century movies. Um, it's it's surprising actually. And uh, so yeah, I I always love doing film criticism the best I think. Besides maybe just just fiction writing, that's mm-hmm. always been my favorite kind of writing. Uh, just love film criticism. Also, I have a book coming out any day now uh, called The Last Book of Film Criticism. Nice. And, uh, that a, a friend of mine has a press in London, and uh, yeah, he's going to put it out. I think it's just going to be an ebook format and whatnot. But it was nice that he remembered me from the Budapest dates and asked me to do this book for him. It's uh, just a collection of uh, reviews about various movies. Uh, yeah, it's it's basically it started out as being the top twenty of the twenty first century, but you know it kind of expanded. Steamrolls, yeah, right, because all of a sudden you're picking four or five Tarantino films, and then your list is shot. You know? Right, yeah. So, and true. then of course I tried to relegate it to only English language movies. You know, trying trying to you know keep a grip on it, and I only did positive reviews in this book, uh, despite myself. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it's it's just basically about two dozen essays on on what I consider to be probably the most notable, let's say, English language films of the 21st century. Cool, man. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Oh yeah, it'll probably be very reasonably priced. Hopefully, I will be promoting it on <laughs> the Sports History Network too. Got to get some Good. perks out of this. <laughs> That's right, man. Good stuff. Well, I'm glad you're putting on your film critic hat again for this episode because we have three Super Bowl disaster films, two of which, as you mentioned before, are actual disasters, one of which you and I are both very big fans of. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. And the first movie I want to start off by talking about is Superdome from 1978. picture on the ABC Monday Night Movie. They came for the glamour and excitement of Super Bowl week. But it wasn't the only game in town. Enjoy. The other two were love and murder. We got 75,000 people in the dome and we got a psycho on the loose. David Jensen, Donna Mills, Clifton Davis, Van Johnson, Ken Howard, Playing the deadliest game of the year at the Superdome. Okay, you're going to go backwards. Okay. Yeah, well, I think we should go in the order by which we both think these are probably worst to best, I would say. So we're going bad to good? Okay. 
Yeah, so th- this one I definitely think was the weakest out of the three by far. Okay. And oh. for those of you, for those of you who are listening, the plot is essentially the four days leading up to the Super Bowl in New Orleans, which obviously that's where Superdome comes from. And kind of in the background of their four day exploits is a series of killings that midway through the film you find out what it is. And this was a weird movie to watch, man. When I was watching this, and it's a TV movie, by the way, it was part of the right. ABC. It was part of the ABC Monday Night Movie franchise that took the right. place of Monday Night Football during the off season. And while I'm watching it, I kind of got the feeling that there was an executive at ABC who had the budget to make a Super Bowl movie, but had like three different scripts, so he couldn't decide which one to make and basically mash them all together, because there's a lot of different plots that some of which don't even matter to the central part of the theme or to the film. And then there's parts of the movie that they try to connect through the most ridiculous ways. What did you get a sense from it? Okay. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I had seen this movie before, right? And I couldn't figure out when or where or how, right? Because again, it's a TV movie. And uh, this is in the late seventies. So stuff like this kind of fell through the cracks. Like it never got put onto video uh you know in the 80s and it never really hit dvds in the 90s uh in fact you can watch it now on youtube which is mm-hmm. actually super dope because you get all the commercials too yeah <laughs> Those are that's great. great i got this i watched the same one they're so primitive. It's fantastic. 70s yeah. stuff, man. Beware flashbacks for those older listeners out there. Um, but I I I and I couldn't because you know, I've seen a lot of bad films, right? But mostly from the 80s, 90s, and aughts, right? Mm-hmm. So so it, I, I, it couldn't have been that, you know. I, I it wasn't that I was thinking of another movie and it was this one. No. Okay. So then I go to Wikipedia and I find out, I was like, that's it. I had seen it on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And let me tell you, if your movie gets made into a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, you got a bad movie on your hands. <laughs> I mean, that's just the very, that's explicitly what they do on that show. So um, I also found out from the Wikipedia article that this was actually used to promote Super Bowl uh, 12. Right. Now, <laughs> Now, which is kind of strange, uh, this accounts for like the cameos by Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus for sure. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what they're doing there just to throw out some throwaway lines. But um, it's interesting the levels of involvement in these three films. OK, this is the latest one with by the NFL. This is the latest one of the three. Right. And here they're explicitly saying it's the Super Bowl. You know, they're explicitly saying it's the National Football League. They've got the former players in here. But the team is the Cougars. And the other team is what? The Rangers? They're going to play hockey out there, I guess. I guess they're playing hockey for the Super Bowl. Um, And so somehow they found this movie acceptable, you know, to connect with the NFL name. Um, obviously not a two minute warning. Uh, we have a couple of fake teams in two minute warning because clearly the NFL wanted no part of that movie and their brand to be associated with, but we'll check it out there. Um, I, I mean, I mean, this is just a bad film, right? I mean, I, Tom Selleck was pretty funny, um, 
as an all-pro quarterback wearing number 19. Uh, and I also liked the insidious, over-the-top plan to, you know, it's the old, it's the famous electrocute him in the jacuzzi trick, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, what? Um, well, it's ridiculous. The, the nice thing about this movie is it's a good, bad film. You know, again, it's like a mystery science theater special, right? So so it's a good, bad film. So it's it's amusing enough in that bad way to keep you watching, but woof. I'm sorry. This is just not a good, not a good film. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it through the lens of, like, being a product of its time, you can see where the fascination was, right? I mean, they have pretty much an all-star cast of television actors, you know, David Jansen yeah. plays the, uh, the Cougars GM, uh, Tom Selleck, as you mentioned in his pre Magnum days gets in there. He's got a signature mustache, you know, Donna Mills, I actually think had a really good role in the beginning of the movie before the script required her to be something that she wasn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I really thought like out of that whole thing, she was kind of like the, uh, the person that could do it, but you know, being a TV movie, obviously the plots are ridiculous enough that, can justify some crazy action sequences, but they don't have the budget to pull it off. So they don't have the graphics, the special effects, the stunt coordinators. So obviously it kind of falls flat on its face by the end of the movie. Um, But I I think if someone's a football fan, I'm not sure they would necessarily like this movie because this is definitely more for, I guess, history people and film people that want a good laugh. Um, But it's interesting. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. You don't even get the game. Yeah, you know, not at, at all. At least in the yeah. other two films, you get some football. You know, yeah, 100%. very little. Very little in the uh, in the second one. The, uh, not, the closest, not Black Sunday, but yeah, the closest up. thing. Yeah, the closest thing that we get to this is I think they're uh, running routes in practice. Yeah. That's the closest thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's just like it, it's. It's interesting that you bring up like the NFL and kind of like their role in this because from what I understand. The Superdome at the time was actually operated by the state of Louisiana. So the NFL actually they um they were contacted about using real teams, but they wanted nothing to do with the movie. And whenever the movie was released, Roselle was really pissed because he used to work in public relations for I guess an airline whose airplane got hijacked in Australia, I think in the early seventies. And it found out he found out that the guy um, got an inspiration for the hijacking from a movie. So he thought, listen, this can give people bad ideas, uh, which is kind of interesting, you know, because a year earlier you had full cooperation with a movie that is even more catastrophic of an event. Well, see, here's the thing. Roselle was correct in a way, OK, because the first of these three movies, Two Minute Warning, did give some people bad ideas. It gave them the idea to make a copycat film on this same premise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there you go. That's the bad idea. In fact, Superdome kind of killed this genre. I mean, being very short lived. Yeah, right. Being a TV movie, um, one of these, the second one, Black Sunday, is an adaptation of a of a pulp novel. You know, uh, in in the seventies, mm-hmm. you had a run of these very trendy pulp novels like uh, the godfather and jaws and stuff like this that later that soon got turned into movies okay and then you have two minute warning which is an original script right so well actually that that's also based off a pulp novel as well too oh is it okay okay that i did not know but that seemed like a script written 
you know, to be a movie, <laughs> you know, right. it's like th this is the failing of that second movie uh, of Black Sunday is that it, it, it's obviously a novel adapted, you know, and you just can't do certain things. So but with Superdome, it's kind of it, it's evidence that this genre has run its course. You know, to me, Superdome is like the imitation of the imitation, you know, and that's it. You know, this this subject, you know, like football, Hollywood is a copycat leak, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when you get a Titanic, you get the disaster at sea movie. You get the perfect storm. You get like, you know, the ripoff movies of Titanic, right? Same thing here. I don't know what Two Minute Warning did at the box office, but I would be shocked if it wasn't at least a critical success because that's a tight, well-made film. Uh, and so, you know, the other studios, the Burbank studios go, hey, we need to make this film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely it definitely felt like this was sort of like the last pitch effort to try to yeah. make that genre something, because I think you can kind of see the progression. Like if you go from theatrical films that touch on the subject mm -hmm. matter and then you had to move to TV, I think you can see there's a decline in the interest right. just from there. Right. And it was yeah. fine. And to go off that point about the imitation John Keyworth, he actually got a death threat, which the NFL had had that prior to it. But because this movie had just come out, a lot of press was asked. They were asking Roselle, like, do you think this has anything to do with the film? Oh. And he, he didn't want to attribute it directly to it. But he said, this is why I think it could be sort of inspiration. You know, the the suggestion could be very powerful from a movie like this. So it I is, guess. it's kind of interesting to see. Yeah, I guess, you know, the 70s, was, like I keep saying, the 70s was a weird decade. <laughs> um, but it, it really was. I mean, seriously, very violent decade. You know, I mean, this was the decade of serial killers in the U.S. You know, you had you had stuff like Summer Sam. And mm -hmm. and uh, I, I talk about this a lot, too. You go back and you look at any sport, any sport from the 70s. It's violent. The hockey is harder. The football is harder. The baseball is harder. Cricket is is fierce. You know, it's just like. It's just a violent decade, really, at least in American and European culture, Western European culture, just very violent seeming decade. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely fit the bill for like the new Hollywood era from like the yeah. late 60s all the way up into like really early 80s. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so our next movie that we're going to discuss is from 1977, and that is John Frankenheimer's Black Sunday. We found Dahlia Eyad. You sure? Positively identified in a Miami hotel last night. The day we set the big one off, we're only going to be 100 feet off the ground, right over the 50-yard line. Now look at this. That means 222,000 darts in the kill zone for 80,000 people. The National Football League welcomes you to Miami's Orange Bowl in the championship of professional football. What exactly is this Super Bowl? Pat Summerall with Tom Brookshire. And Tom, you can feel the pressure building up all week. So here we go. Super Bowl is underway. My God, here it comes. Call it a stadium. Call it a stadium. Signal red alert. Get the president out of the stadium. Ah! 
pilot. If anything happens to me, you use this on the backup fuse. Sunday, it could be tomorrow. Did you get the chance to see this in theaters? Oh no, no. See again, like I'm, I'm about nine or ten at this point. Gotcha. So no, no. You don't know. So, so, I never seen it before. I never seen it before this week. You've never seen this before? Nope. nope. So what, what was your initial reaction? Actually, tell tell everyone like a brief synopsis of what it's about if they haven't seen it, and then kind of give us your wow. take after you watch it for the first time. Okay, it's not a complicated plot, but it is complex. It's basically the many, many, many stages of a terrorist attack. Uh, the many levels you get uh, several levels of law enforcement and intelligence operations. You get um, international locations and whatnot. You get very little football. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty much that's basically it, right? It's it's about a um, a I guess at center we can say is Bruce Dern playing Nicolas Cage. I swear to God. <laughs> That Nicolas Cage learned everything in acting from this movie, from Bruce Dern in this movie, because he looks and acts just like Nicolas Cage, who was, I guess, a prisoner of war in Vietnam, was tortured extensively, is really messed up about it now, and uh, you know has PTSD, the whole works, and works as the blimp operator. And this is the main problem with this movie, okay? This movie for me was proof that marketing has been killing films even before Star Wars. Okay, because the poster, the trailer, okay, everything is about that blimp that's going to crash into. Is this the Superdome as well? No, this is the Orange Bowl. This the is where, yeah, the, Bowl. Okay, the, right. Yeah, blimp, different states. supposed to fly into the Orange Bowl, yeah. Right. And and so they tell you that's the, the denouement, right? And you have to wait like two hours and 15 minutes through a lot of stuff that is strictly speaking not relevant, you know, just to get to that scene that you know is coming. And and I mean the thing is named Black Sunday, right? It's it's football Sunday, right? I mean, we know that's what it's gonna be about. And I just fail to understand why they didn't mess with time you know like they should have done that old trick that they kept doing in the 90s and the aughts where you start the film at the absolute peak you know like think of something like fight club you know mm -hmm. that opening scene has heavy you know wtfery because you know you're right there bam in the middle of the action then it goes all the way back to the beginning and by the time you get back to that point you've forgotten Right. Why couldn't this movie have chopped it up more? It also would have made the very long subplots 
a lot tighter if they had just, you know, cut everything together. Now, I know I'm speaking from a post-80s ballad. I know I'm speaking from a cut, 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 cut viewpoint. But still, I mean, it wouldn't have taken much to, 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 to you know, throw in flashbacks or something instead. You know, two years earlier. Yeah, How I definitely. How difficult is it to do that? Yeah, I definitely think this was a movie that could have shaved off about 25 minutes, maybe even a half hour. Um, yeah. And I, John Frankenheimer is a director I do enjoy some of his movies. You know, I, I think probably my favorite movie of his is Seven Days to May. Um, mm. and, and this one I would probably say is more middle of the road than some of his other movies. But I do agree that it was so long in length that midway through the movie, I was really losing interest. Um mm-hmm. And the only thing that really kept me to the end, frankly, was the fact that it was going to be played at, that they were going to have a scene at the Super Bowl. But right. I got to tell you, once they actually got to the Super Bowl, I was completely engrossed in it. I mean, I, I got sure. to the point, I got to the point that I really didn't even care what the outcome of the event would be, or even, in, I even forgot at one point that there was a terrorist attack. You know, if it wasn't for <laughs> like the, uh, if it wasn't for the scenes with the Goodyear blimp intercut with the uh, the game between uh, Pittsburgh and Dallas in Super Bowl ten. I was yeah. I was watching a thriller movie, and it was really like I, this wasn't Frankenheimer's intention, I'm sure, but you know the the cinematography for the football scenes were really beautiful. I mean, they were very clear. You know, it shows the difference between you know an NFL films as a magnificent job back in those days, especially. But it's different watching you know what they shoot on. I think 16 millimeter as opposed to shooting on Panavision with 35 millimeter. I mean, they just got so close to the players. I mean, you see. Yeah. Um, you know, if you watch like the broadcast version of the game and then you watch like the uh, the scenes that are pulled from the film, it just looks so beautiful. I mean, I, I'd be curious to see. I, I really wish after watching that that John Frankenheimer would have directed a full football movie. Yeah, I mean, geez, look, if the name I, I'm one of those guys who thinks that especially in movies and books, titles mean things. OK, mm-hmm. so the movie is ostensibly about Black Sunday. Why was that? game not the star of the film right why did that start with that point you know the one of the things that was clever about uh no no it was uh two minute warning one of the things that was clever about two minute warning is how does it begin it begins with that aerial shot of the coliseum right Mm -hmm. how does it end it ends with the aerial shot of the coliseum at night right that's like that says, okay, the setting of this thing is a football game. You know, Black Sunday, they promise you the football game. And again, they don't deliver on it until the end. This is a failing of the marketing of the film, whatever. Now, I suppose what they're banking on is, is that everybody read the book already. Okay. Right. But if Steven Spielberg had had that mentality, right? I mean, Jaws would have been one of the least scary films of all time. He worked hard to make that a movie, right? And, and I guess this one is just a product of, you know, nobody wanted to edit the thing. You know, yeah. Everybody was afraid to, to tell the director, you know, uh, you know it's a bit long. <laughs> yeah, I know the book is 500 pages, but still. And, and also, too, Paramount was really banking on this to be the blockbuster. 
You know, yeah. Robert Evans, who was the producer of the film, who also produced Chinatown and The Godfather, he said that this was a disappointing success because he thought it had all the recipe, all the elements to be a big blockbuster. But again, you know, we'll get to it in a few minutes, about two minute warning. This kind of had a backlash because people thought that the movie was going to be in the same sort of vein and the public, I guess, just didn't want it. So it didn't produce the financial results that he wanted. But when you look at what Robert Evans had to do or not what he had to do, but the way he got the cooperation from the NFL, you would have thought that the realism would have sold uh, some more tickets because at the game, you know, you get Pete Rozelle, you have, you know, Franco yeah. Harris, Tom Landry. I mean, you have a, you have a real all-star cast of extras that show up in the movie that you think would have really been a, a big sell. So I, I really am disappointed, I guess, to find out that it didn't do as well in the box office that that angle didn't promote it as well. But I yeah, guess but if any of the critics are true, that that kind of exhausted them from two minute warning the previous year. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and plus on, on at, at the very end of the thing, right. Black Sunday, because the NFL is involved. Compare the ending of Two Minute Warning. We really should have put a spoilers thing on the front of this. Compare the <laughs> ending of two, two Minute Warning to Black Sunday. Okay? A, a lot of it is the same. Okay? But how much more intense is Two Minute Warning? You see people die. Okay? Now, the NFL isn't going to have that in Black right. Sunday. So you get a lot of the same shots of people running away. And, you know, there's this hilarious shot. There's a couple of cowboys in there running with mm -hmm. the regular people. You know, they're all trying to get out. And then you see some people fall off the railing and stuff. But they're okay in this movie. Right. right. And, but compared to a movie that didn't care about meeting the approval of the NFL, and which one is a better ending? Which one is better filmmaking? I mean, right. obvious, you know, the non-corporate sponsored one, Two Minute Warning. Okay. Um, and so, again, like, like, I almost feel like it's one of those movies where every time they had to make a choice, they made the wrong choice uh -huh. in the making of this movie. And, you know, the whole thing just gets dragged down under its own weight. Yeah. Well, and, and also, too, in, in the book, the book was actually written by – Thomas Harris, who had written the Hannibal Lecter books, and this was, I think, his first novel. So it's it's sort of a strange introduction to his writing career. But in the end, he actually has the bomb going off and killing. I don't know if it kills everybody in the stands, but it definitely kills the agent, uh, Robert Shaw's character. Um, <laughs> and an interesting what they did was interesting for the production of the movie, too, because they actually had filmed the disaster sequence the day before the game. And they actually had Miami Dolphins players dressed up as Steelers and Cowboys players. And when you look at some of the reaction shots in the crowd, you'll see like in the background, they have entire rows of seats that are empty. And oh, that's yeah. because they only had certain sections filled for viewing for the uh, filming of the um, that sequence. Sure. So it's yeah. cool to it's cool to see how they sort of uh, were able to intercut those two uh, days of shooting together to make it seem seamless. Because when by the time they're actually all running together, you see like a lot of close up shots, a lot of medium shots that, you know, really you're able to kind of make believe that it was all during that same time. And I did read on IMDb that they actually did shoot some of it after the Super Bowl, but I couldn't find anywhere where that was actually the case. I, uh, I was, I was, Wondering about that because there was one play that they showed. You got a nice shot of one play where 
the pocket collapses around Bradshaw and he has to scramble for like seven or eight yards. And I was like, there's no way that's Bradshaw. <laughs> like, oh, that, no, that was him. Bradshaw. I don't buy it. <laughs> well, you know, you know what they actually did too? So they didn't want the crowd to know that there was a movie being shot. And honestly, I'm not even sure if the players knew there was a movie being shot. They actually put CBS decals on the cameras. So everybody oh, just no. thought they, yeah. So everybody just thought they were part of the television crew. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's it, the, the cameo appearances alone i think are enough for any football fan to want to watch it i mean you might want to and in some cases fast forward through the movie but i definitely think if you want to get to the last 40 minutes to see the football action you'll see like how beautifully choreographed and sequenced it is yeah as opposed to the long drawn out we've got to get control of this blimp thing that's intercut with it <laughs> right, yeah. you know it's just oh jesus definitely God. And then how long at the very end of the movie, right? The final shot of the movie, again, like I thought this was supposed to be about football and terrorism at a football game, right? So the last shot of the movie is the helicopter's flying away with the dude still dangling from, from yeah. the road. And I'm just right. like, what, is he going to, you know, take a tour of the, of the coastline or what? Yeah. You know, it's just like, Check what? out South Beach, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. It's kind of a great shot, but it also kind of makes zero sense. Right. <laughs> it's just like, who is this guy? Superman? No, he's Batman. He's Batman, right? That's right. So, I mean, come on. All right. So it's for our man. last for our last film, and it's the one that we all have been alluding to and that we both really love, is Two Minute Warning. Championship Sunday. The Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Inside the stadium. 91,000 cheering fans, 33 exit gates. Somewhere in the stadium, an assassin waits. Stand off it, Gary. Pad off it Nothing quick. Don't go right. back to that shot unless I tell you. Understand? Just stay off it. Move! No, 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 no. Who will his target be? Charlton Heston, John Cassavetes, Martin Balsam, Bo Bridges, Marilyn Hassett, David Jansen, Jack Klugman, Walter Pidgeon, Jenna Rollins, Brock Peters, David Rowe. 91,000 lives that will never be the same. Why do you take such pleasure in telling people we're not married? Who's this guy? He's going to kill me. Still nervous? That's right. We're still going to wait, too. Just don't get itchy. What exactly did you see? I told you. A man with a rifle. You get your men into place ready to move, but it's no go till we get all the VIPs out. The VIPs, the probable targets. SWAT 6 to all SWAT units. The suspect is up, armed at the north end of the parapet. We're coming up in the two-minute warning. You ought to have your people in place by then. When the two-minute whistle blows, it's your ballgame. He's up! Two-minute warning. After that, sudden death. This is the motion picture you have heard about. This is the motion picture you have read about. Soon, you will be talking about the motion picture shock of the year. Two-minute warning. So, my initial reaction after watching it was... I was kind of expecting this to be a Pelham 123 chase type of movie, or at the very least, a whodunit. But instead, it was like a lot more like a Robert Altman esque ensemble yes. movie. You know, yes. Charles Heston, he gets the top billing in the movie, but he's absent for long stretches of the film. And I think that's actually a good thing because it gives the audience the chance to follow like the various spectators that are all driving towards the stadium. And that really kind of adds to the shocking ending, I think. 
And some of the supporting characters are a little out of place. Like I think Walter Pigeon as the pickpocket doesn't really have much to offer in the movie. Um, but I think it's a really good example of a script that can juggle multiple storylines. And I think it's an example of a movie that looks like it should be for TV, but because it, it's under the right direction and the right producers in the cast that it actually works well on the big screen. Yeah, it was just, I mean, what I, um, one, one thing I look for in a movie is like how self-conscious is the movie? Right. Mm-hmm. Like again, like, like you see it in, in, uh, Black Sunday. They have to pull some punches because they've got the NFL back. Right. They've got the NFL providing the logos and stuff and what, uh, giving them the blessing, so to speak. Right. But this film doesn't need to be self-conscious about anything. Right. We've got fake teams in there. Actually, I thought it was pretty interesting because in the championship 10, uh, Baltimore is a two-point favorite against Los Angeles. And since they're both wearing red, I figure it's probably the Baltimore Stars versus the LA Express, right? And Baltimore even has a star. So it's like, this is a USFL game in the 70s. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, but I like this because it was, it was like you said, it's a pastiche film, right? It's an Altman film. But it's not gratuitous about it. You know, for the whole movie, there are certain expectations that you have, right? Uh, The whole thing is this kick um, about a sniper, right? There's a sniper at the, at the championship, championship 10, right? And the whole plot revolves around that. Meanwhile, you've got like a good eight or nine subplots going on, Mm -hmm. uh, including one with Joe Cap. Yeah. yeah. Right. Ex CFL star, ex Rose Bowl quarterback. <laughs> Fantastic. And quarterback for the Vikings in Super Bowl four. And so you have like all these subplots going on and, and you're wondering like, for example, like why in the hell am I watching? What is Gina Rollins doing with Mike Cassavetes here and, and the drunk guy giving her whiskey? But like, what is this about? Like, like what is Jack Klugman? doing here other than you know trying not to do oscar madison again you know which Mm -hmm. is really what he's doing he said with more swearing (laughs) but you know um how what are these characters about and yet at the end it's brilliant because it you you understand why you understand first like why the gunman is there kind of Right. That totally goes against your expectations. And you get it. You get why we've spent so much time with these characters. Right. Because I mean, basically, the answer is because you get to see what happens to normal people in a crisis situation. Right. Right. It it, it would be like uh, I almost feel like if if this had been attempted by another director, the the whole thing would have been about the cops, right? The whole uh-huh. thing would have been about Heston and 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 is Jansen the other cop? David Jansen? No, it's so uh it's Cast, it's, there's John it's John Cassavetes and it's John Cassavetes oh. plays the SWAT leader and then Charles and Heston plays the LAPD officer. Oh the police captain. Yeah. I messed that one up. Uh okay. So yeah, the whole movie would have been about that and the sniper guy. Right. Right. And then you would have had, 
you know, a, a bunch of these people dealt the cruel fate, you know, a bunch of the, uh, a bunch of the, you know, Jack Klugman's and Gina Rollins's of the film, and they would have just gotten blown away, and we wouldn't have cared, <laughs> you know. But that's what? the point. That's, this, this is good movie making, right? You, you, you want. I mean, it's not enough. <laughs> sounds cold to say, but it's not enough to have this very traumatic, very, um, you know, this psycho experience. You know, again, the violent sevens, right? Uh, it's not enough. You want to like know about those people, right? That humanizes the tragedy or whatever, as they say in news coverage. Um, so, the other nice thing was, is that because they're developing these characters, because they keep all the action in about 16 hours, I would say, the whole movie takes place in about 16 hours because they can do that. It just enriches this environment of the football game. It enriches the, 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 just the feeling of the film, right? Because stuff is happening all over the place and you get this nice depth that the other two films, which were barely touched on football at all, just didn't have. Yeah. Well, and, and it's good in this movie. And this, this kind of falls in line, I think, with other action thrillers at that same time, kind of like Charlie Barrick or The Friends of Eddie Coyle, where you'll start off with some sort of crime, right? I mean, this, this movie starts off with a sniper testing out his rifle on just a random person. Yeah. And, and, and it's from his point of view, right? So it feels so remote, but so intimate because you see him put the gun together and you just feel this, chill go down your spine right like almost like you're looking at it right through his eyes and but the way that i liked is you know 40 minutes goes by the movie before the football game is even kicked off right i mean you just have the opportunity to hear the dialogue between various of the characters and kind of figure out why they're there at the game like you said kind of adding that human element to a thriller um and but i I like how it just allows the tension to build up because even once the game does kick off you do see a lot of football action you know i think if you're a person that wants to watch it just for the football angle you could watch this movie because you have and this game was actually filmed during a pac a championship between stanford and i think usc so it's interesting to see like how they kind of use that stock footage and kind of combined it with the um the film but it has like a lot of really great imagery and like the shot selection going off, you know, what you talked about earlier, how it starts off with the LA Coliseum, a high angle shot, you know, it shows the vastness of the Coliseum and I guess just how big the game game is in the scope of the movie. And then it's like, you cut instantly to the point of view of the sniper. And to me, it just has like a good visual language, I guess you could say. And it was fascinating to me, like how the exposition, I think really, added to the overall terror that the movie would eventually become if you will yeah i mean the uh, you, you just talked about the the opening with the sniper this long sequence of the point of view sequence with the sniper um think about what happens in just like the first five or six minutes of this film right you get the coliseum shots you get the credit then you get the sniper doing the whole like you know i know this guy is coming by here so here i'm gonna pick him off right now Right after that, you get you get some cops settling a domestic dispute with tear gas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And pretty pretty soon thereafter, Charlton Heston is going, "Why in the hell did this guy take out a botany professor at Stanford or UCLA or whatever it was?" Right? Mm-hmm. Why why this guy? And the, the great thing about this script is we forget 
We forget because if we think about that, we'll realize what that sniper is actually there to do. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's wild. I mean, it's just, this is just good script writing. It just doesn't let you up. You know, you're, you're, you, you were just saying, yeah, it's 40 minutes before we get uh, the actual game. But, <laughs> you know, do you notice it? I mean, this thing grabs your attention from the go and it's just, it's going through these characters so efficiently and tightly. And, you know, you get all the stuff in the, in the TV booth as well, which I thought was really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. That's always fast moving anyway, right? Because these guys are, you know, looking at 20 cameras at the same time and, and calling shots, literally. Uh, so, you know, that's always fast. And it's just, the pacing is just fan freaking fantastic. Especially since we live in an age, you know, of, of, of Netflix and Amazon Prime movies that, that have no sense of timing whatsoever, that have no sense of pacing at all. And then you look at a film like this, it's just bam, 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 never let you go. It's over? Damn. <laughs> you know, well, it, I miss this kind of movie. I well, I think it kind of shows where the attention span is at because, like we said earlier, you know, when you start an action movie off in the 70s with a crime and then you have the middle of the film to really build up and then you go back to the action, whereas now it has to be action, action, action. Maybe you have like a couple slow scenes in between. You you kind of see how the audience has progressed. You know, you, back then it was just as much of the human element or the story element as it was to good choreography, good action sequences. Um, and you, you, it's very rare that you find anything like that today. I mean, the closest movie I could think in some semblance was Drive with Ryan Gosling. You know, yeah. a movie like that I think had a sort of similar pacing and structure to it that I don't think you're going to see out of a lot of action movies today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm curious about your take on this because whenever I was reading the reviews, um, this movie wasn't well received when it came out. Uh, you know, Roger, yeah, Roger Ebert absolutely hated the movie. You know, he was disturbed by the nihilistic violence, and he didn't like how the gunman was pretty much anonymous. You know, he thought that yeah. it was kind of eerily put into the movie it kind of left him unsettled and gene siskel hated the film because he said there was no human value in the film and that anyone who bought a ticket would go to go see it would encourage hollywood to make more of the same now this is kind of like a instance where i feel like the movie has aged better than the film reviews because i actually think the fact that you don't really get to know the killer or the background kind of resonates more than ever because i mean how many times within the past decade or two have we had a killer that didn't have much of a profile you know either he took his own life or was shot by law enforcement and really left behind no trace of who he was right and that kind of adds to the disturbing randomness of it so for me i actually kind of felt i actually felt that aged better for today's world than ever so i feel like kind of Ebert and Siskel and obviously the benefit of hindsight is going to be different than how it is in the moment. But I, I just think the film reviews they gave just didn't really match up to today. Well, I mean, you compared it to uh, the Altman sort of, you know, mini genre that he created, that he had a, a real grip on in the nineties, but Jesus at this time, dude, I mean, he was doing stuff like Nashville. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, like he, he wasn't doing films like that. So just by making this comparison, you're basically saying this is a film ahead of its time, at least right. in terms of like editing and, and, and pacing and stuff like that. 
as far as the killer being anonymous, well, that was kind of the point of that bit at the end. Right. Where they're going, I don't know who the hell this is. Well, you're going to in the next few days. See, again, the film is not about, you know, the killing or whatever. It's about the act at the football game. Yeah. And if you don't need to know the identity, I don't believe that you should do it. Why? Why? What's the point? You know, I mean, that's, you know, realistic, let's say, because that's what would really happen in real life, let's say, is it's a nobody. And then all of a sudden, after it happens, everybody knows about it. Right. You know, that's completely with it. Um, as far as this movie lacking humanity, well, I don't know. I, I don't really agree. I hate to go against my main men, but I, I don't really agree. I guess on, on the other hand, you could look at this film in th- terms of its characters as kind of like do the right thing where it's very allegorical. I mean, you, you could look at it that way. Like, the cops are just the cops, you know, uh, the Jack Klugman character is just the guy with a gambling problem. Right. You could do it that way. Cause I mean, it's not like Klugman gets 30 minutes of screen time. I mean, he probably gets about 10 or 12. <laughs> so, so most, yeah. just look at these characters as allegorical, um, in that respect, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really want with this film, it would have suffered if it had been a Titanic, you know, yeah. or, or a uh, Black Sunday. You know, yeah, if it, if, if, it, if it was a procedural or just a straight-up disaster film, I don't think it would have resonated with me as much. I'm definitely glad they went more towards the expository route than they did the investigative one, I, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Just, just again, it's just keeping that fast pace. I mean, this is an exciting film. This film doesn't let you go. Yeah, and, and I would, that's what movies should do, you know, is is just keep your attention, just keep you thinking, just keep you alert, you know. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with like having to having to keep up with a fast paced film. Hundred percent. Yeah, and I this is this this is definitely a movie I would recommend. Whether you're into movies, thriller movies, or especially football, I think every person, every type of audience would enjoy this. Mm-hmm.